Well, thank you very much. We are returning to our Hebrews series today. Now, I'm going to use, well, the sound booth is going to use PowerPoint slides. I intensely dislike preaching with PowerPoint slides. However, uh, to push this sermon into 30 minutes, it will help because the passage is actually a little bit complex. I don't know if you fully appreciate the value of Hebrews chapter 11. Say, so, well, it talks all about faith and we need faith and that's true. But there's more here to this chapter than that. I realize I'm probably a tad strange about a lot of things, but I enjoy reading history. And what I especially enjoy in reading history is getting the back story that makes the story come into perspective. And Hebrews chapter 11 does that with some really important narratives in the Old Testament. We return again to Abraham. Second time we encounter him, Hebrews 11, verses 17 to 19, for sake of time, if you just kind of keep your Bibles open there, we'll look at these three really important verses. Remember that the earlier reference to Abraham had to do with an initial faith that responded to the call of God to leave kindred, go to a place he had never been without GPS. I'll show you when you get there, which requires, of course, considerable faith. And that was the faith that sustained him while he waited for the promises of God and dwelling as a stranger and a sojourner in the land of Canaan. And now the writer of Hebrews is dealing with Abraham as a more mature believer to the faith that sustained him under severe trial. Now I need to make a really important statement. In some ways it's the theme of the message. Faith will lead you to the crisis. You think faith will preserve you from the crisis. Not true. Faith will lead you to the crisis. Faith will sustain you in the crisis. And faith will lead you out of the crisis. Crises in the lives of believers are not accidents. You don't have to be a fatalist waiting for the next storm cloud, waiting for the next obstacle, waiting for the next bad thing. Because though crises do come, and quite frankly, more of our crises come because of us than any other reason, we create our own. Nonetheless, crises are part of of the plan of God in your life. 
And if you are following Christ by faith, that pathway will lead you headlong into some full-fledged crises. So look in verse 17. Faith under trial. I don't like trials. I don't like tests. I don't even like to give tests, mostly because I have to correct, grade them, and mostly because they tell me things I'm not sure I want to know about the people I'm teaching. But tests do not produce faith. They reveal faith. You don't find yourself in the middle of crisis and all of a sudden you find faith. If you don't have the faith going into the crisis, you're not likely to develop it while you're there. We have this statement in the book of James. And of course, Martin Luther couldn't understand the book of James. James said, show me your faith by your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. When you're in the middle of a full-fledged earthly crisis, that's when your faith demonstrates more than any other time in your life. Faith in trial, by faith Abraham, when he was tried. We inevitably think it's strange to experience trial, even though the Word of God is quite plain. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you, but rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, and that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. And I am not altogether certain that's talking about the sweet by and by. The glory of Christ can be revealed in the midst of the crisis. And if you recognize it, that is a source of tremendous joy in your life as a believer. Jonathan Edwards, who's little read and even less appreciated in our day, said the surest way to know our gold is to look upon it and examine it in God's furnace. When he tries it for that end, we may see what it is. We're not talking here about temptation. There is a difference between temptation and trial. Temptations are provided by the evil one for the express purpose of giving you an opportunity to fail. Tests are provided by God for the express purpose of giving you the opportunity to succeed. To prove that his word is true. To recognize for yourself that God is everything that he says that he is. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Abraham's trial here, the trial of his faith, was for his good and God's glory 
And I don't know about the rest of you, but that's pretty fantastic to think about. That God can bring our good and his glory together in human experience in response to biblical faith. There's faith through the trial. By faith, he offered up Isaac. At this point, you need to remember the narrative in Genesis chapter 22. It is a bit of a long narrative, but God spoke to Abraham and said, Take now thy son, thine only son, your unique son, Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. And Abram rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and clave the wood for the burnt offering and rose up and went into the place of which God had told him. True faith always responds to the word of God. Abraham was busy with life. He was busy with, and I strongly suspect, greatly enjoying rearing this son of promise. And life was moving on. And God interrupted his life with an astounding command. I can't imagine what went through his heart or ultimately his mind. Here is Isaac, the son for whom Abraham had longed and now loved with all of his being, and God commanded him to go and burn his son on an altar. His response is so different from ours. I have lived through the trauma of making life decisions it was not traumatic because I didn't know what God wanted me to do. It was traumatic because I didn't want to do it. It was traumatic because I struggled with believing that God could and would follow through on his end of the equation. I fought with God for probably the better part of a year over the call to the ministry. That's not biblical faith. Biblical faith doesn't have to have explanations. Biblical faith does not have to understand. Biblical faith only needs to know what God wants and what has God said. And we obey by faith. Now, again, don't confuse trial with temptation. Satan tempts to prove us false. God tries not only to prove us true, but to prove that true to us. First Peter, your trial much more precious than gold. He responded immediately. Faith does not hesitate. You know what hesitates? Flesh. Your fallen nature. The grammar here suggests that Abraham's surrender on this point was absolute. If you Greek guys or girls, the perfect tense is used here, indicating that it was settled 
that Isaac was as good as already sacrificed before he ever got to Mount Moriah. There's a very real sense in which faith sustains a believer through the trial while the trial is already in progress. Decisions of the heart about God and our relationship that determines the character of our faith are made before the trial and again demonstrate during the trial. Faith for the trial? He that had received the promises. Are the promises of God nullified by a commandment that seems to contradict those promises? Because that's exactly what's going on here. God in his province has told Abraham to do something that from any human perspective would inevitably mean that God's promise could not be fulfilled. What truly extravagant and adventuresome faith Abraham demonstrates. Faith goes out on a limb without fear of falling because God doesn't fail. Abraham, there's a stronger word used here than you might realize. The Greek word here for received is not the word. There's a prefix put in front of it. He not only received, he accepted. He took up the promises of God. He appropriated them. Abraham still had the promises all the way through this journey. They had not changed, even though the circumstances of life appear to have changed. But God is not a man that he should lie, neither the Son of Man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Hath he spoken, shall he not bring it to pass? You must believe that and act accordingly, because the faith for the trial is never faith in the circumstances, it's faith in the God of circumstances. It is faith in the revealed word of God regardless of the circumstances. So what was the faith from the trial? He offered up his only begotten son. There is a grammatical shift here. We go from the perfect tense to the imperfect tense, meaning he was offering up. This doesn't necessarily show in our English translation, but Abraham offered Isaac as a completed task in his own heart and mind, even in the process of doing it. We walk by faith and not by sight. We look beyond the crisis and beyond the circumstances and see that God is true. The trials of life and faith see the hand of God at work. That not only glorifies God, but it grows our faith. You will never be asked of God to do something by faith that will try your fallen nature, but that you'll come out on the other side of that experience with stronger faith. We grow through the exercise 
of faith. Now notice that Abraham is offering up his only begotten son. The word that's used here means one of a kind. This is the same concept recorded in Genesis chapter 22 and verse 2, thine only son, the son of promise, absolutely unique in the plan of God. The promise given long before the trial appeared, he offered up this son. Make the connection. Faith is increased again by the exercise thereof. Abraham not only took the faith into the trial, he took the faith out of it as well. It goes back to my premise. Faith will lead you to the trial. Faith will sustain you in the trial. And faith will lead you out of the trial. Notice this faith through time. I'm kind of a instantaneous kind of a person. I don't like to wait for anything. I stand and stare at the microwave and count down the numbers. I sit and, or stand and watch the pot waiting for it to boil and a watched pot never boils. I like things to happen immediately. I like to be able to track and discern and waiting for answers is contrary to my nature. The time element is very important in the proposition of faith. We live in time motivated by eternal realities. If you're only measuring everything on the basis of the lineal and cannot see beyond to the eternal, you're always going to be frustrated. Here's a past promise. Of whom it was said. You see, Abraham began to operate in faith when he answered the call of God to leave the Ur of the Chaldees and go to the promised land. And along that path of obedience, God gave him several promises. And the promises of God to Abraham focus on his offspring, not Ishmael, who was not the son of promise, who was Abraham running ahead of God, Abraham not operating in faith, sorry ladies, Abraham listening to his wife instead of God. Genesis 21, that controversy that came up between Sarah and Ishmael, it came to a head and God revealed his eternal plan did not particularly include Ishmael. There's clearly a time lapse between Genesis 21 and Genesis 22. It is a period of some years. At this point in Genesis 22, Isaac isn't a child anymore. He likely is at least a teenager. And all this while, Abraham had lived in the expectation of the fulfillment of all of these wonderful promises in and through this son. That in Isaac shall thy seed be called. And that's a present reality, and it's a critical point. At no point was the promise of God toward Isaac ever in jeopardy. Regardless of how it appeared. 
The continuous reality of the promise was an ever-present reality. The promise of a progeny that would be so numerous as the stars of the sky of heaven and as the sands by the seashore was just as real, just as true, just as permanent in the present in the face of offering Isaac as a sacrifice. We must learn to appropriate the promises of God in the present tense. Now, I'm a Southerner, and I have some appreciation for old Southern songs that I almost never hear up here. There's a land that is fairer than day, and by faith we can see it afar. Our fathers look over the way, and the chorus goes, In the sweet by and by. And the sweet by and by is true. But the truth is, we live in the nasty now and now. And the promises of God that are true in the sweet by and by must also be true in our hearts in the nasty now and now. Just as real. If we cannot embrace the promises of God in the present, we don't believe them in the eternal either. What is eternally true is true now. Abraham knew that and was unmoved in his faith. And we have this wonderful commentary in James that Abraham was justified by his works. And again, Luther didn't understand that, but Abraham wasn't justified before God by his works. He was justified before men by his works. And he was justified in his own experience by his works, as faith wrought itself out in his works. The whole theological argument of James chapter 2 is based upon the present reality of faith, the result of God-honoring action by faith. Justification before God is in Christ. Justification before men is in this life. And the realization of the fact of justification in your own life is worked out by your experience of faith. You realize afresh you really are God's child. He really is your father. You really do have a relationship with him and you can trust him implicitly. So we come down to verse 19. Faith and triumph. Verse 19 is a bit of a crescendo for you music folks. And this is important. Faith reasoned to the resurrection. Accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. There's no scriptural evidence that Abraham had ever seen a resurrection that he had ever heard of a resurrection. As a matter of fact, he didn't even have the Bible. He didn't even have the book of Job that said, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and he shall stand in the latter day upon the earth, and though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. He couldn't point to that. He had no experience 
in the arena to which his faith inevitably took him. How did Abraham get from the promise of God, his own personal obedience, and the death of Isaac to the resurrection? Do you remember in Genesis chapter 22, he took his son, he took a donkey, he took a load of wood, he took fire in a pan, he took a knife, and apparently no one said anything till they got to the foot of the mountain. And Isaac said, I'm amazed a teenager waited this long. Isaac said, here's the fire, here's the wood. Where's the sacrifice? What a profound statement prophetically made. My son, God will provide himself a sacrifice. And depending on how you want to parse those words, it all works out the same. He did. He provided he provided a sacrifice, and himself was the sacrifice. Any way you want to parse that, it works out. Abraham fully intended to take a sharp knife after he had bound his son and put him on an altar of stone covered with wood and cut his son's juggler bane and pour his blood on the ground. He fully intended to take that fire in the pan and ignite that wood and burn his son's corpse to ashes. John Trapp, the old Puritan, said, Never was gold tried in so hot a fire. What could possibly have sustained and given him a steady hand and an undaunted spirit in the hour of such a trial. Abraham did not believe even for a moment that that pile of ashes on that burned out altar was the end. He accounted. The word used there is interesting. It's in the aorist tense, and it's a single, decisive, mental act. The word, by the way, is from which we get our English word logic. That's why I say he reasoned to the resurrection. He reasoned this way. God made a promise. The promise is in, his son, in this son. God cannot lie. So if I follow through, I don't know how. But God will raise him again. The God who had given Isaac in the first place from Sarah, who was as good as dead, was the same God there on Mount Moriah. This is profound, incredible faith. Faith does not struggle as to whether or not God would raise him up even from the dead. When we know that this is true because Abraham had already told his servants, I and the lad will go yonder and worship and will come again to you. So a lot of this was already long settled in his heart and his mind. And consequently it received the reward from whence also he, he received him in a figure. 
with the knife poised in his hand. Abraham was blessedly interrupted by God who said, Now I know that thou fearest God. Well, God always knew. He knew what Abraham was going to do, and he knew what he was going to do, but he didn't explain it to Abraham, as he quite frequently will not explain it to you. Isaac was as good as dead, but was spared by means of a substitutionary atonement. The statement that he received him in a, as in a figure is more significant than you might suspect. It is a parable of something yet future, a type of that which was to be accomplished in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He received the son of promise alive and we receive the lesson of faith pointing to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross and we are blessed by the faith of Abraham, a vibrant, pointed example. May I please go back to where I began. Faith will lead you to the crisis. If you are following God and his word by faith, that will lead you right into the storms of life. But faith will sustain you in the crisis. Don't be like Peter who started walking across the water and took his eyes off the Lord and saw that the winds were contrary and the waves were boisterous. Of course they were. It's a storm. Don't be surprised if there are difficulties that test your faith and cause you to want to look in a distracted way away from the answer in the person of Christ. Faith will sustain you in the crisis. Faith will lead you out of the crisis. I am not naive enough to think that with this many people in this room, everybody's enjoying life right now. That none of you have any problems. Everything's just fine back home. School bill is paid. Grades are at the top. Life is good. Your girlfriend is steadfast. Life is moving on apace. No problem. There are too many people in this room for that to be entirely true. Some of you are facing a crisis that you haven't told anyone about. Some of you are finding it necessary to believe God in things you can't understand or explain, in situations that you cannot personally resolve. Let me encourage you. The God who promised always keeps his promise. It has nothing to do with your circumstances. It has everything to do with who he is. Let's pray. Father, many of us have faced crises. Many more will face other crises. And as long as we live in this life, in a contrary world that hates the truth, we will have challenges. 
but you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we can trust you and believe you and not be afraid because faith conquers fear. Open our hearts to receive this truth and drive it particularly home to the troubled heart in this room this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.